Okay, so I was a little kid in Detroit, and I finally got to go fishing with my granddad. I was crazy excited because it was going to be like what I saw on the TV, right? And it was. We had some snacks. We put the worms on the hook, threw them in the water. And we waited. And waited. And then, bloop, my float started bobbing and I had one. Granddad said, you're in real slow now. You're in real slow. Don't go fast. And the fish fought and tugged and pulled, but I didn't let go. I didn't let go of the pole. I reeled him in real slow, like Granddaddy said. And right when he got to the surface, I yanked him out of the water. On the side of the river, big fat catfish flopping like crazy, my first catch. Oh, Granddaddy, he gonna be tasty, ain't he? Granddad looked at me like I was crazy. Boy, what you talking about? We ain't eating this fish. Why? Why? What? Why not? Boy, that fish came out the Detroit River. That fish for catching, not for the eating. He unhooked the fish, the fish that I had just caught. He threw it back in the river. No! But when he was leaving, I glanced over and saw a man barbecuing a catfish that looked just like mine. See, Granddaddy, look. The man looked at us. We looked at him. The man said, hey, you got to die something. I'm going to die a barbecue catfish. Well, today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Toxic. Stories about contamination, impurities, and poison. And my name is Glenn Washington. We're going to start We're gonna start with a story, a story I didn't even believe when I first heard it. I had to get on the Google and everything, but it just goes to show that you can get just about anything in the mail. David was a fairly typical young boy. I mean, you know, rode around the neighborhood in his bicycle and played sports. And his grandfather, as a gift, gave him a book called The Golden Book of Chemistry Experiments. I think it was the 1960 edition. It was this period of great optimism about science, where science could cure every disease and eradicate poverty. And of course, nuclear energy was going to be too cheap to meter. Here, in fact, is the answer to a dream as old as man himself. A giant of limitless power at man's command. In the atom. David just became a convert. He just became absolutely devoted to science. I mean, I talked to this old physics teacher in high school who said that David's dream was to collect every element on the periodic table, which is, you know, as this professor said, I don't know about you, but at my age, my dream was to get a car. He became very adept at using chemicals by making very elaborate fireworks and entertaining everyone on the 4th of July. You know, these weren't just firecrackers, these were like major rockets. His parents vividly recalled one evening as they were sitting in the living room watching TV, David used to work down in the basement because he pretty much destroyed his bedroom with his experiments. Guess there'd been all sorts of fires and small explosions and chemical spills. And they heard a very large explosion and rushed downstairs and David was laying on the floor in a sort of semi-conscious state. His eyebrows were smoking, his parents said. And it turned out that he had been experimenting with red phosphorus, which is highly explosive. He'd been pounding on it with a screwdriver when it blew up. For months afterwards, he had to return to the ophthalmologist and he had to have pieces of embedded plastic in his eyes that he had to have extracted. But then he became interested in nuclear energy. And the simple explanation was that he remembered his parents sitting around the table fighting about how expensive electricity was. And he'd been reading about nuclear energy and specifically about breeder reactors, which turned out to be this complete illusion. But the idea was that a breeder reactor would not only generate energy, but you would actually produce more fuel As he was discovering science, he also got involved in the Boy Scouts. And David was a very exuberant Boy Scout and sought out to achieve the status of Eagle Scout. And to do that, David decided that he was going to try to build a nuclear reactor. 
but he was determined to, to help fulfill the dream of cheap nuclear energy. Being a teenager under the best of circumstances is difficult, and when your parents are divorced, it's probably a little bit harder. And I think part of what David was doing, and he would say as much, was that he was trying to exert some kind of control over his life. And he was very, very good at it, too. He impressed people. David was this very popular kid. He had a highly desirable girlfriend who was really impressed with his scientific achievements. He got a Geiger counter from a mail order house and he used to drive around Detroit and go to antique shops and test old antique clocks, for example, with the Geiger counter to see if they were emitting radioactivity because back in the early part of the 20th century, they used to paint the faces of clocks with radium to make it glow in the dark until they discovered, of course, that radium was highly radioactive. And in fact, the people who painted the clocks, lots of them died of cancer. Radium, half-life, 1,600 years. He would write to smoke detector companies posing as a student doing a project for school. And so a smoke detector company sent him about 100 old detectors and he extracted this little chip of americium in it. Americium, half-life, 432 years. He got thorium from old Coleman gas lanterns. Thorium is highly radioactive. Thorium, half-life, 14 billion years. He wrote to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission posing as a professor and engaged in lengthy exchanges with an official at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission who kept providing him with information. Gee, what's the best way to purify radium? And he did right away and obtain very small samples of uranium from a company in Czechoslovakia. Uranium, half-life, 4.5 billion years. He didn't just go out and get these gas mantles off these old Coleman lanterns and put them into a shoebox. He, well, he did do that. But before doing that, he actually was able through incredibly elaborate experimentation to purify some of these materials. He was using coffee filters to try to uh, strain thorium and radium and stuff like this. The lab was a potting shed in the backyard. That was about as sophisticated as it got. No responsible adult intervened at any point. I mean, this was going on for years, 92, 93, 94, between the ages of 14 and 17. I mean, he'd be out until two or three in the morning in the backyard potting shed with a blowtorch and he'd dispose of his clothing and they thought it was cute. He was driving his car around 2.30 in the morning, and it's never been exactly clear what was going on, but somebody thought he was trying to steal tires from a car. The police came by and stopped him, and then they searched his car. They found a toolbox that was shut with a padlock and then sealed with duct tape. David, he was very vague and not very cooperative, in fact, but he did warn them that this might be radioactive materials in this toolbox. At which point the police did something very baffling. They were fearful that they had an atomic bomb on their hands, and yet they towed David's car to their own headquarters before deciding what exactly to do with it. And then they realized, oh, we might have a atomic bomb out in the parking lot. We better get everybody out of the headquarters and warn people away. And they ended up calling federal government officials at the Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency and the FBI and deciding what to do about it. So then the feds and state officials go out to his mom's house and they discover this catastrophe in the backyard potting shed where they find jars of acids and Pyrex cups and all sorts of powders and they seized all of the materials and they later tested it. I've got the records from the Environmental Protection Agency and the police reports, and they really did find excessive levels of radioactivity, high enough levels that they had to bury it at a low-level dump site in Utah. The highest count they found when they tested it was coming off of a vegetable can, and they found a count which was a thousand times higher than normal levels of background radiation. It was 50,000 counts per minute. Thorium, it was found that he had purified it to at least 9,000 times the radioactive level found in nature. He had to have done sophisticated experiments to purify these materials. So this is when they realized that 
you know, they had a serious problem. I mean, his mother lived in a residential neighborhood. There were tens of thousands of people in the area. They dubbed it an imminent and substantial endangerment to public health and welfare. And so they sealed off the shed. It really tried to keep this quiet. So one day the neighbors discovered that there are men in funny white suits in the backyard cutting up this potting shed with chainsaws and putting it into radioactive containers. That's when the neighbors found out there was something really scary going on next door. This had been the focus of his adolescence. So when the police stopped him and they collected all of his materials and raided his shed, he told me that he was pretty bummed out at the time. In the end, it was determined, and rightly so, that David was not a terrorist. He was not out to build a nuclear bomb. He was not out to, to harm anyone. Look, it's impossible to build a nuclear reactor in your backyard. I mean, David's ambition was preposterous. And so he didn't come anywhere near his goal of generating nuclear energy. He did achieve some extraordinary scientific successes. He had gotten his Atomic Energy Merit Badge and he became an Eagle Scout. After graduating from high school, he joined the Navy and he was stationed for a time, oddly enough, on the USS Enterprise, which is a nuclear-powered aircraft. He was not allowed to be anywhere near the nuclear reactors because it was deemed that he'd already been overexposed to radiation in his life. He had assured me at various points that he had completely closed off that chapter of his life and that he was no longer interested in this sort of stuff. And then, you know, as I was completing the book, it turned out that he was planning trips up to Canada to scour for uranium. And so he still for years dabbled, and for all I know still does, in these sort of uh, scientific experiments. Many thanks to investigative reporter Ken Silverstein for sharing his piece. Ken wrote a book about David called The Radioactive Boy Scout. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. Also, big thanks to Harper's Magazine and Emil Klein for the story. It was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. Now, Andrew Tillon was an amateur bike racer and a professional journalist living in Northern California. One day, he found himself wanting something just a little bit more. And understand, this is a family show. Don't worry, it's not too crazy. But sensitive listeners should know this story does contain sexual references. I'm no Lance Armstrong, but I raced in Colorado and in New Mexico, in the Bay Area and in the Rockies. Very passionate about it. I was interested in finding an intimate story about doping. Just because I'd been a bike racer for a long time, I was really curious about regular people taking performance-enhancing drugs. I started researching and discovered that there was a whole industry of supplemental hormones for men. Millions of men 45 and older just don't feel like they used to. Are you one of them? They could add to your libido. They could add to your swagger. They could give you more strength. They could make more passion for the one you love. Every day feel like a better day. You'd be more optimistic. With this added virility, you'd be a happier person. I was definitely slower on my bicycle, and I was uh, lower in my libido, and I was sort of felt the weight of a mortgage and a long-term relationship, and being a dad of young children. After a while, I, I didn't think that the schmaltzy anti-aging ads looked so schmaltzy. I kind of identified with the, the before pictures and thought, what could be the after picture? I took steroids for two reasons. I took steroids as a journalist, curious to live through an experience that I felt no professional could really relay. And I took it because I was a guy who was getting older and didn't want to slow down. Twice a day, I would apply this cream to my body with the hopes of raising my testosterone. I was on a pretty healthy dose of testosterone. It took a while for it to kick in, maybe six, seven weeks. My doctor told me that my first metric, so to speak, would be morning wood. I woke up with something else in the bed most days. My sex life did improve. I was interested in having sex all the time, and I was interested in having sex with 
boiling teapots and red mustangs that would drive down the street. I was, I was 19 years old again. It's funny and fun and sometimes disturbing and sometimes annoying. I, I took no for an answer from my wife, but um, I kept coming back and, you know, she was swatting me away like a fly. You know, here I am on the roids, just feeling really good, I mean. And my son played Little League. My boy was only about eight years old. And so occasionally the, the dads would play a position in the field just to keep practice rolling. And, uh, you know, the, the other coach kept hitting ground balls my way and I kept throwing out kids by vast margins, feeling like, you know, Derek Jeter. One time I just let the ball just rip and I forgot that at the receiving end of that ball was going to be an eight-year-old boy. And I really pelted him in the, in the shoulder and... He cried and I felt bad, but I was also kind of laughing at the moment. <laughs> he was going to be okay, and I just thought the whole thing was just sort of silly and ridiculous, and what had I become? In the cycling aspect of, of my doping, I never felt very good about what I was doing and until I was actually racing. Most bicycle races, as most people would know, would be sort of this point-to-point -point race. Well, there's this other kind of bike racing, too, called criterium racing. You go round and round. And these races are supremely dangerous. Even when pros take them on, there can be real blood and broken bones. And I went round and round for maybe half a dozen laps and way off the front, way beyond where everyone else is. It was so much fun. And I felt so strong. You know, I envisioned everything from the cover of Sports Illustrated to uh, the the yellow jersey of the Tour de France leader. And being in front, as I would go past the start-finish line, there was a microphone and a speaker, and the race announcer would call out my name and marvel at my aggressiveness and, and my ability to keep off 30 hard-charging guys behind me. And that part was all glory, and I could forget all about the guilt of doping and cheating. And then there was uh, the flip side of that. When it was all over, and I won the Most Aggressive Rider Award, and I had to stand in front of a bunch of people when I knew that really I was a fraud up there. I, I lived with the threat of my children and my wife being contaminated, and that is the word they used by the hormone, um, which I applied topically, so it could get on my clothes, it could get on my towels, it could get on my sheets, and if I wasn't careful, there was the threat that this testosterone could find its way onto my children or my wife. There are many documented cases of dads taking testosterone and their children growing mustaches and developing in their genitalia at an accelerated and sort of Frankensteinian rate. I was, uh, I was keeping more of a watch than I care to admit. It's not with a lot of pride. I mean, it is funny and, um, and I can laugh at it now, but at the time... I mean, these are my children. They're my most prized possessions. If you're an edgy guy, steroids can make you edgier. And I'm an edgy guy. That probably took a while longer to kick in. Probably a couple months into it is when I really realized that uh, it was. there were days where I felt like I had a, a dozen cups of coffee in me. I was driving with my wife, and we got into a small fight, and it escalated only because I think that I was uh, agitated, fueled by testosterone. Just sort of howled at her and my eight-year-old son and pulled abruptly across the road and into a parking lot. And They literally got out of the car when I stopped it and had to, had to get some distance from the car, and I just sort of sat there with my head on the steering wheel in disbelief. That, to me, was the beginning of the end. the glory and thrill and guilt of, of bike racing on the stuff and the libido and confidence and swagger and finally the edginess too. I realized that maybe life would be better without it. I miss the testosterone sometimes, no doubt about it. There are days where I think that uh, life might be better back on it, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, grow old gracefully. I would say the jury is out, that I'm not sure of the trade-offs, but uh, I'm, I'm clean, and I could be tested at any moment, so I stay clean. 
faire du Nord, Paris, Roubaix, Tour de France, Tour de France, la Côte d'Azur et Saint-Tropez. Now, Andrew was sanctioned from bike racing for two years after he confessed to doping. He promised not to do it no more. We'll have a link to his book, The Doper Next Door, on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the toxic episode. Don't touch it. Don't go anywhere. It might hurt you. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. Now understand, there are all kinds of toxins in the air, the sea, the soil. But it is one of those ironies of nature that we sometimes depend on the most dangerous substances to save that which we hold most dear. His very first time grabbing the Snap Judgment storytelling microphone, we're proud to present Mr. Jay Lee Alday. She was just 12, when the malignancy feasted on her bones like a stray dog. And I asked her about her memories of that time. And she said it's all in fragments, a wicked kaleidoscope. The chemo was like injecting a fifth of moonshine into her neck. Imagine the stab of a thousand needles with each breath, that's how it felt, she said. The burning scent a bow would awaken in her throat like a slapped newborn. And the injections came so often they started to feel like best friends and how the hum of machines can sometimes sound a lot like a lullaby. Andreomycin, bleomycin, the drug vincristine softened her skin into an empty canvas. Each touch left a tattooed bruise, and I know this bruise. On the first night we kissed, I asked her, how'd you get that bruise across her chest? It resembles a faded highway, and she said it was a map she drew to a place she wants me to call home. She remembered her palms drowning in hair and how for a 12-year-old girl that hurt the most. Fifteen years later, sitting at a kitchen table in Oakland, I catch her caressing her hair like a long-lost love finally found again. And damn, I catch myself looking at her in the same way. She says that she's worried now. She's worried that I'm going to sculpt these past wounds and make her into some kind of martyr. She said, baby, my story ain't nothing new, so don't paint me special. I'm not. And I told her, yes, you are. And now I'm worried that she won't see this story as what it is. A love letter disguised in rust, written across scar tissue. So I told her, I see you like I see the world, a constant state of breaking and mending. So even in our worst of times, I will always dig relentlessly for your belly laugh. I am built like that. So if the sky around us buckles and a thunderstorm brews, I will always point to that cloud shaped like a fist and say how beautiful that one is still fighting back. It reminds me. Of you. Jaylee Alday is a member of the spoken word powerhouse group Proletariat Bronze, and he's currently working on a novel. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Pat Masidi Miller. And one thing, one thing you learn about these toxins with even the most casual research is that they are everywhere. 
in places you don't expect them to be. And in real life, real people pay a real price. You wouldn't think it'd be fun living next to a runway. But here in South San Antonio, Texas, you can find a community that loved living next to Kelly Air Force Base. Here it takes from two people. 69-year-old Robert Alvarado. We would hear the jets where they would break the sound barrier, and I said, wow, you know, it's so nice to be next to the base. And 22-year-old Diana Lopez. My house was located at the end of the runway. It just seemed really exciting to be in the air. I thought that I really wanted to be a pilot. It's been a patriotic military town for generations. My father was killed in Normandy. My son was in Desert Storm. Uh, two of my grandsons were in Iraq. So my dad was in the military, and my sister also joined the Army. The area around Kelly Air Force Base is generally low income and 95% Latino, and so the Air Force Base was the main industry in town. But since Deanna wanted to be a pilot, that worked out great for her. My senior year, talking to counselors, talking to teachers, and they said the only way I would be successful in aviation was if I joined the military. I thought the military was doing so much for a Mexican race because it was the best place that we could advance. And I started signing up for the Air Force. Diana was scheduled to start at Lackland Military Base, and she was thrilled. But in the summer before her new life, Diana got a job going house to house and conducting a health survey. Asking people different questions about how many people in the household had certain types of illnesses. The more houses she went to, the more Diana started realizing that many people she knew had cancer in their families. A lot of people. Liver cancer, birth defects, leukemia has been one of them, Lou Gehrig's respiratory illness. You go up to the door, you see your friend's mom, and you'd ask them these different questions, and you realize that you're going into deeper that friend's life. You, you, you didn't know this person was also suffering from cancer. She even met households where entire families were affected with cancer. That's how she met Robert and Lupe. My name is Guadalupe Alvarado, and uh, happy to know you. <laughs> Robert and Lupe lived in their home next to Kelly for over 30 years. To the east and to the uh, main base, I'm like six blocks. But without any previous family history, Lupe suddenly developed thyroid cancer. Then both of their daughters also developed mysterious and severe illnesses. And then Robert had an aneurysm, loss of sight, a thyroid growth, and finally kidney failure. I'm very sick from my kidneys. My doctor said that it was a chemical damage because my filters were all damaged. Chemical damage? But from what chemicals? I started attending all kinds of meetings because we felt that our, our community was so sick that we needed to know more about it. That's where he found out that in 1983, officials at Kelly released statements saying that dangerous chemicals, including probable carcinogens TCE and PCE, had been dumped into an open pit in the 60s and 70s. They also admitted that the chemicals had spread into the groundwater several miles off base. The Air Force said that the concentrations of chemicals in the water weren't enough to make people sick. But some people feel that the chemicals are the cause of the cancers in the area. The area that these chemicals affected was dubbed the Toxic Triangle. The results of Diana's survey shocked her. The cancer rate in the Toxic Triangle is 60% more than the rest of San Antonio. More than 70% of the homes have had a type of illness associated with the contaminants. Most of the people in the community, however, don't really know what that all means. They don't know the meaning of chemical contamination. We're not educated like <laughs> no scientists or anybody. And others were counting on the Air Force. Because there's still a lot of people that say, oh, no, no, I worked for Kelly. Kelly was good to me. And they won't admit that they're sick because of that. You know, they're loyal to Kelly. <laughs> These were people whose careers depended on Kelly. And Deanna's parents thought that applied to Deanna as well. The success of a child is always on a parent's mind. It was very difficult for my parents to understand what the value of me getting out of the Air Force was. They saw it as going against my family, going against my sister. But behind their back, Deanna started attending rallies and protests demanding that the Air Force clean the area around Kelly. The whole time, though, she couldn't shake her lifelong dream of flying. At that point, I was also going through a transition of what 
it is I wanted to do in life. Like you have your mindset on something and then you decide that this something isn't what you want to do because it's killing your neighbors. But she was inspired by the setbacks Robert had to overcome in order to speak out. His kidneys are failing, his children are, you know, dying. So it's, it's just empowering to have, you know, people out there in the streets because their life depends on it. It's their community and they're going to fight for it till death. In Robert, and Tiana recognized a different kind of patriotism. Yes, we're patriotic and we still hold up the flag because we are uh, American citizens, even though the wars are over, and, but we're still casualties of war because we're still dying from the same chemicals. Being an American, we'll fight for our country and we'll die for our country. And so, Diana called her recruiter with her decision. And the recruiter wasn't happy. The recruiter tried everything to keep me back in. The thing that really impacted me was he said you could get out of the ghetto. I really am opposed to the word ghetto. It's not something that should be used for my community or any community out there. I instantly knew what type of person this was. And this is not a person I want to be in the future. I didn't go to my leave date. Instead, Deanna got a job that works to clean up her community. The Air Force has since agreed to pay for a cleanup of the area, but they say it could take 30 to 40 more years. She wants the area to look good sooner than that. We want our community to look like this. We want urban gardens, we want parks, we want sidewalks. Robert, Lupe, and Diana are working together to help the community understand what they're faced with. We're not going to stop fighting. You're going to see us. You're going to hear from us around the country. And is your sister in the Air Force disappointed about your life now? No. She's absolutely proud of me. (laughs) At the end, they supported me being happy. At the end, they support my sister being happy in the Air Force. In the meantime, Tiana hasn't given up her dream. She's learning to fly. I've actually done a few of my lessons already. It's very amazing when you have this big engine in front of you and it's sort of your defying gravity. Now, I'd like to thank everyone involved in bringing us that story, including Lindsay Patterson, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, Steve Lerner, and Wilma Serva for their help with the piece. We'll have more information about the Toxic Triangle on our site, snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. And coming up next on Snap Judgment, the toxic episode, I've got a scorpion and a rat, and you do not want to miss it, do you? In just a moment... And Snap Judgment continues. This is Snap Judgment, and today on the show, we're exploring the effect of various toxic substances on our lives. And there's a storyteller I've wanted to bring to Snap Judgment for some time. He goes by the name of Inner City. Let me warn sensitive listeners, this story does evoke some graphic images. Listener discretion is advised. I've got heroin in my family. Other people brag about having Dominican, West Indian, Cherokee, high cheekbones. It doesn't matter if your last name is Walker, Smith, or Jones. We all hear people laugh and joke about, ooh, girl, you've got that good hair. You must have some Indian in your family. 
or European flowing through your bloodlines, but unfortunately, nickel bags of brown smack flow through mine. My biological father sold and used biohazardous drugs. His biggest customer was my mother. Me being in her womb made me next in line as she took that next line. Now I heard that it was weed is what he smoked and he dabbled it in with a little bit of coke. Daddy was part deacon in South Bronx, Puerto Rican, but it wasn't the affection for his children that made him poppy. Nah, more like the opium that made him poppy. Popular with the mommies, unfortunately one was my mommy. Sugar daddy before Sugar Hill trying to fix her sweet tooth. She wasn't born with a silver spoon in her mouth. More like that blackened spoon that was ghetto heated to make sure she had everything she needed. Mommy was too vain to shoot it in her veins, y'all. Nah, she rather reenact the scenes of Lady Sings the Blues as she shot that shh in between her third toe then covered it with sock and shoe. In her womb, I would and chew. Umbilical cord feeding me more waste than East Oakland, 81st Avenue, quarter pounds. March 28th, I was born four and three quarter pounds. Skin ravaged with eczema and keloids, but it still didn't leave more scars than mommy and daddy. My biological parents selling and using biohazardous drugs, making me chemically imbalanced, mentally challenged. I was born with the name of DeMarco foster home renamed me Negro. Adopted parents flipped it up to Cation because it meant wander of the earth, so I changed it to inner city because of my poetical birth. Now check it, that's Negro exposing reality. I represent all those black-on-black fatalities, so while you lay in your delusional reality, how you have ended in your family, man, I've got heroin in mind. My family tree consists of pimps, pushers, people who smoke trees and got hung from trees, all screaming inside of me. Either in dime bags or body bags, black caskets or clear crack capsules. So when they say, man, inner city, why are you so dope? It's dope. I'm confessing. It's a blessing. I'm the product of the product that 1970s tapped the needle ghetto narcotic. Similar to Marvin Gaye taking a line or two before writing I Want You or Inner City Blues. My inner city blues does not have me cross the line between love and hate, but more like love and Colombian. Wait, man, wait. Mommy took smack to hide from daddy's smack because he said she was always talking too much smack. And it's hard to find biological junkies because you know they always cover up their tracks. So why you sit back and say you have Indian, West Indian, Cherokee high cheekbones, it doesn't matter if your last name is Walker, Smith, or Jones, that's fine. Because I've got heroin in mine. Now, Inner City is an award-winning poet and storyteller. We can't wait to feature more of him on Snap Judgment. We'll have a link to some of his projects, snapjudgment.org. And you might remember one of our favorite storytellers in all the land, Daya Lakshmi Narayanan. She's been on the Snap several times, but this story, this one, is from her father. And here's the rule. If it's toxic, it's even more toxic when you're a little kid. I am Lakshmi Narayanan. I have one and a half PhDs looking at the basic components of medical physics on a very high level. I was born in India in a small village called abbreviated to Tinagar. In those days, many people lost their children to childhood diseases. So my mom lost at least three or four children. Our family was large. All of us slept on the floor with very thin mattress. And right next to the house was a tract of land which was not used. That had a lot of trees and bushes, mangoes and jasmine. And uh, there were lots of creeping, crawling creatures like cobras. And we had lots of scorpions coming into the house. The dark-colored 
scorpion, which was known to be very venomous, the bite of that scorpion could result in fatality. One evening, I was very little at the time, like three-year-old or four-year-old, and I was climbing up the steps. I suddenly felt a very sharp bite, humongous sting in the middle of my right palm. I let out a huge cry and started crying, and my aunt just came rushing out to see what had happened. And then she looked around and she saw this scorpion, and she immediately figured out that that was the reason for my hurt. And I felt pain, that intense tingling and burning sensation slowly creeping up from the palm towards the wrist, towards the elbow, and up. The toxin, you know, spreading through. My life was a threat. My aunt took a piece of thread and tied it around my arm and immediately said, we have this very religious person and he can make your pain disappear. And he was known for practicing mantra. And he was very well respected. This kind of mantra is equivalent to something like magic. So my aunt gathered person to come out and do his magic. And he came with a uh, too long a broomstick, the spine of the palm front. And he started from a shoulder, sweeping with those from top to bottom, and gradually slid those two from shoulder to the tip of my fingers a few times, constantly uttering rhythmic sloka in a very subdued tone, but very firmly so that I can hear it. I was feeling the different sensation, hearing the rhythmic chanting. I stopped crying because it's were all strange to me. I've never seen that practice before. And then, you know, I felt these two things going from my shoulder to the tip, shoulder to the tip. And he will tap those two steps on the floor as if he had taken the venom out, sending it to the earth. This went on for about 15 to 20 minutes and uh, I felt more and more relieved that the venom was slowly reversing, the pain diminishing. And the uh, person who did this magic, so to speak, said that it's all over, you can go home. And my aunt gave him a few rupees for his uh, service. The people who practice such art, they undergo a very rigorous training and they hold it as an art known to themselves. Next day, I was back to the same old self. No more stinging in the hand or anything. As a scientist and as a person who actually went through this, okay, I have very different perceptions of the same thing. I know that this happened to me. I know that I felt it. I know that it went away. But as a scientist, one explanation that I could think of was that the person who did the so-called magic put me at such a calm state that the regular reactive enzymes slowed down and the other counteractive chemicals were released. And that was the reason why the venom didn't have any effect. That's what I believe. Big thanks to Lakshmi Narayanan for that story. Now today, to finish out the toxic episode of Snap Judgment, we've got a story from the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, and it turns out he used to have a little bit of a pest problem. Space what I needed. I told Dirk, I'm coming out to New York. Rent me a music studio where I can live, where no one will bother us, and the ideas can just flow. And he did it in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, right next to the sewage treatment plant. Across from a 24-hour body shop that spray-painted taxis nonstop, I smelled it before I saw it, and then I saw it. An old foundry abandoned by a sculptor. I rolled open the steel door, 40-foot-high ceilings, a huge area for music, one smaller area upstairs for sleeping. The big room, it had no light, just two small windows 20 feet in the air. It was perfect for keeping hostages. 
Out back, there was a concrete garden of failed sculptures. But the air, the air, the sewage treatment plant at the end of the block smelled like a sewage treatment plant at the end of the block. Dirk, this is perfect, man. You know, he was worried, but see, we had amps, mics, guitars. We plugged in, and the place transformed. When Dirk went home, I crashed in my bunk upstairs. There, right over the heater, the sculptor made a small platform bed and a tiny alcove. And as the body shop banged all night long, the paint fumes put me to sleep. The next day, I got a job, but just to pay the bills, that's it. Nothing was going to interrupt my flow. Work jam, work jam. When I wasn't doing that, I worked on my novel. I hung out with my characters. The only problem was, they were all dudes. And then one day, I got a letter from a girl I met just before I left. I wrote back, she wrote more. Soon, I stopped writing the novel, and I just wrote love letters. Finally, she confessed, I want to move to New York just like you. Well, you can live with me, but understand, this is Bohemia. She moved in, and while Dirk and I jammed downstairs, she typed cover letters upstairs. Anyway, as it got colder at night, whenever we ran the heater, we would hear a little scritchy scratch under the bed. The heater kicked on, scritchy scratch. The heater off, silence. She said, I think we got mice. We could get a cat, but no, she was allergic. So instead, for peace of mind, she just started calling it furry. I'd come home to an empty cupboard, and she'd say, Furry ate the chips. Look, don't call him furry. It's not a pet. These things carry disease. So I put out mousetraps, but furry wouldn't touch him. And I could tell she was secretly pleased by this. At night, she'd get on her pajamas, and she'd say, Good night, furry. Good night. And furry would scratch back. I didn't like it, but we never saw Furry, so it was an arrangement. So anyway, work jam, work jam, Bohemia got old pretty fast. For her. One night we went to bed knowing the relationship was doomed. But that next morning in bed, I heard a very loud scritchy scratch. In the room. I flipped around and I saw it. A moving bag of popcorn 30 feet away on the bench. Furry. I picked up the book at my bedside, and I flung it like a tomahawk at the bag. Furry popped out, and he scrambled back between a row of boxes. I hop up, grab a mop, and then I pry apart the boxes. A very long tail is sticking out. I turn the mop around like a spear, and then I stabbed it into the shadows. Furry screamed. Then he made a shrieking dash for a hole under the bed, but before he got there... I bludgeoned him with the fat end of the mop. I didn't need to tell her how big Furry was. She'd hurt him. So I went and got a shoebox, and I placed Furry inside. I covered him up, and it was over. But then, just to see, I turned on the heater. Scratchy scratch. Scratchy scratch. I had a whole family of Furries under the floorboards. She wouldn't stay there. She came to work with me that day. At lunch, I went out and got rat poison. The guy said, you don't really want to use that because they die in the walls and they smell and you get flies. But I had no choice. By night, the poison was eaten. Then, I waited a day for them to die. I returned with these noxious industrial-sized bug bombs to take care of the flies. I set them off and I ran out. I wouldn't go back there for three days. When I entered... The air was full of death. The floor was covered in dead flies. And there I am, cleaning this mess up with a push broom and a snow shovel. And I knew I'd done it. I'd done it. Nothing could live in this place anymore. Not even me. I came home and I told her, I'm done. I'm done with work jam, work jam, bohemia. I'm just going to work. So we pooled our money. And by the holidays, we rented a brownstone apartment in Park Slope. We even bought a little Christmas tree and she called it Sprucey. And every night, at bedtime, she would say, Good night, Sprucey. Good night.
All right, you've reached the end. Don't be sad. Don't be blue. More Snap Judgment goodness on our site, snapjudgment.org. You'll find podcasts. We go on the Facebook. Hit us on Facebook, Twitter. Tweet, tweet. Let us know. Tell your own story to the world on our site. Now, Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the Toxic Cleanup crew. Get your Geiger counters out for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna, Danger Danger Sussman, Stephanie Clean Hands Foo, the radioactive Rita Daniels, Snap's Master of Poisons, Will Urbina, and Jamie, the Pesticide the Wolf, the Reaper, Renzo Gorio, and he of the toxic tone, Pat Masidi Miller. Now, if you sprayed some fertilizer on your lawn, and the next day find all your lovely grass shriveled into a barren parking lot of death, there's a lot of people you should call. But please, please do not bother the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I assure you, they had nothing to do with your tragedy. Many thanks to the CPB. You Speaks, because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. Now, if you took intelligent audiences yearning to breathe free on this side, and you put amazing makers of media on the other side, and you stirred them all together in a pot. Well, you've got the PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, not ORG. Now, you know this is not the news. Absolutely not the news. In fact, you could kidnap a biogenetic scientist, demand that he engineer a toxin so robust that one whiff would cause instant death, but engineer it so that it would affect only one targeted person. You could then dump that targeted poison in the water supply and later realize as you take your last drink from a faucet that you've been tricked the target was changed the target is you alas you could do all that and still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is in 